Hello, my name is Anna, and if you're into scary stories and creepy real-life happenings, then I think you will love my podcast. Let me tell you a scary story. Join me every week as I read to you stories of the paranormal that actually happen to ordinary people. These are things that can't be explained and don't always make much sense, and they are sure to intrigue and to give you the shivers. So join me on your favourite podcast listening platform and let me tell you a scary story. Welcome to episode 60, California. California. Tonight we're going to discuss the hauntings of Turnbull Canyon and then dig into the John Homer Van Meter case. I'm your host, Chris. With me is James. What's up, brother? How you doing? Doing good, man. Doing good. Um, this weather here in Houston sucks. <laughs> when does it not suck, though? I mean, it, it was very nice and, and wintry a couple weeks ago. It was nice and cold. And then uh, this past weekend, it got really muggy and it just couldn't do anything. And today, it was cold in the morning, hot in the middle afternoon. Then it rained. And, and then it, it got, got cold again. It got cold again. And I'm yeah. like, man, my sinuses are going to explode out of my head. Yeah. Well, I do like the cold weather. So I love the cold I weather. I wish it'd stick around for a little bit. I, I should not. I'm over here sweating, getting ready for the show, and I should not be sweating in the middle of December. Yeah, that know? is true. So, otherwise, I'm doing good. Um, I am. Oh, I'm super excited because today, on today's episode, we're going to have two personal stories at the end of the show. Sweet. So stick around, guys. At the end of the show, we're gonna have two personal stories. Um, it's gonna be great. Yeah, when it rains, it pours. You know, so anybody out there who has an interesting story to tell, we'd love to hear it. Doesn't matter if you've seen a Bigfoot, UFO, you saw the video I put together, I hope. Uh, just write your story down, send it to us at stateoffairpodcast at gmail.com, and we will get it on the air. Absolutely. Don't forget to go rate and review, check out our Patreon, all that stuff that you've heard us say a million times. All that good stuff. Now it's time to earn that money. What do you say, bro? Let's do it, man. Let's get into your uh, hauntings of Turnbull Canyon. Sounds like a, a, a horror romance novel. He would think so. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. You'll be surprised. This this place is actually quite, uh, has quite a history, should awesome. I say. Awesome. I'm excited. Okay, Road Warriors, this week's point of interest takes us to an area inside the Puente Hills Preserve near Whittier. I don't even know where Whittier is, but I did look this place up on a map, and it is the extreme southern part of California. Oh, okay. Okay, near it's, the border? It, uh, not quite, but maybe 50 miles, 50, 60 miles north of it. Okay. A four-mile loop trail runs through it, and it is named after a murdered Scotsman. A murdered Scotsman in California. That sounds made up. Well, I know, but you'll see why. I am speaking about Turnbull Canyon, the setting for many unfortunate incidents, and it is said to be vastly haunted. 
I mean, they say this goes everywhere in this place. Uh, the thing is, awesome. most of the stuff I dug up on it, uh-huh. very little is to do with ghosts, but you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. It's still messed up. All right. Once again, I am bringing you a place that you can actually visit, and if you are up to it, investigate these hauntings for yourself. Now, let's start at the beginning. You know, it seems logical, right? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> but I like those movies where you're at the end and you, you go backwards. That's the why 12 like. hours earlier yeah, thing? Yeah, or like Memento you. where it's just all over the place. I hear you. Although the canyon itself was named after a Scottish immigrant named Robert Turnbull, the dark history begins long before he was even born. The canyon is referred to as... I'm trying to... Pr- I'll do my best to pronounce this. Oh, another one of those. Words. Huh? Oh, my gosh. Okay. It's an Indian word. All right. It's Hutukna. Uh, that's that's about the best I can put it. Sounds good to me. <laughs> that, when translated, means the place of the devil. Ooh, fun. Yeah. You like that devil stuff. Yeah. It was home of the, T- the Tongva Indian tribe and would also be the place of their demise. Spanish conquistador types, as I call them, were said to have slaughtered them for refusing to convert to Catholicism, which in itself is ignorant because of the fact that the Indians did not speak their language and the so-called worldwide inquisitions that these people felt was their right to conduct, so to say, trying to force their ideas on people who could not understand nor communicate with them. You know, that's, that's pretty stupid. In my that is opinion. very dumb, yeah. This led to several rebellious uprisings by the Indians and the eventual elimination of these indigenous people from the region. That sucks. And according to legend, their spirits haunt this land, lingering in a state of unrest, waiting to get out. They always do, don't they? Yeah. They're always in a state of lingering all the time. Well, the area is also said to be cursed. Of course. Cursed and, you know, well, the Indians... you. Piss off the Indians. They get you. Oh, man. They'll, they'll curse you, your I'm land, sorry, your granddaddy, you. your, your, you know, they're, they're, they're like Zod. First exactly. you, then your heirs. Well, from way back then, that was like in the 1600s. Let's fast forward now to the 1870s when Robert Turnbull, <laughs> when Robert Turnbull purchased the land surrounding the canyon from the local Quakers. I always think of the guy on the oatmeal box. <laughs> His intention was to farm the land and raise sheep in the area. Wait, did, did he buy it with oats? I don't know. Did he purchase it in like six, 60 sacks of oaks? Oats? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a mess of chickens or something. Who knows? I also find interesting that I did not realize that Turnbull was a Scottish last name. Turnbull. It's probably all rammed together. But Oh, okay, okay. There's no telling. Interesting. That's interesting. Oh, that's I'll, cool. I'll hit up Karen one of these days and ask her. Yes, please do. Yep, she just got back from Scotland, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's right. She did go. Man, we got to go yep. check her out. Anyway, yeah, go on. Do. Okay. He managed to successfully work the land and raise livestock for the next 10-plus years until he sold the land back to the Quakers at a profit. I actually looked that up. He did sell it to Quakers, but it was a utility company owned by Quakers. Wow. Or descendants of Quakers thereof, okay. or whatever. Huh. Uh, you know, waterworks and things like that. And I'm sitting here going, this is in the 1800s? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Soon after selling the land, his luck ran out, unfortunately. Oh, boo. He was almost always drunk when he was seen by the locals, and eventually he was murdered. Wait, 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 wait. A Scotman was always, almost always A drunk? Scotsman. That doesn't sound like them at all. It sounds like an Irishman. <laughs> or Mexican. Well, or, yeah, it could be. We like to get drunk for sure. That's true. But see, now, like I said, he was also murdered, which sucks. Mm. And I did try to find it. There is no cause. 
They, they just found him dead. Whoa, cool. Yeah. Okay. The Quakers decided to name the canyon after him in his honor because I guess they did like the guy. That was nice of them. Yeah, it was. Since those days, there have been strange occurrences and reports of paranormal activity or just plain bad luck. Take your pick. Why not take a look at some of these reported incidents? After all, that is what we are here for, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> the canyon would become the site of many satanic rituals conducted by people who mysteriously vanished, thought to be burned in sacrifices, or killed and eaten by resident wildlife, or even possibly cannibalized. Or Bigfoot. Or Bigfoot. Another story in gro- <laughs> you're gonna love this one. Okay. Another story involves a group of teenagers who broke into an abandoned asylum they had that had burned many years prior, and there was no power to this place. Uh huh. However, for some somehow I don't know how this happened. This is this is this one gets me. Okay. One of the boys who playfully donned one of the shocking helmets that they used on the patients oh, no. was actually electrocuted to death as his friends watched. So it says. Okay. That an old abandoned asylum, no power, it burned. I, I'm thinking that one's a BS. I've seen that in plenty of movies. Indeed. Now, on April 18th, 1952, this was a good one because this one is legit. The L.A. International Airport Control Tower lost contact with Lewis Powell, captain of flight 416. The plane was expected to land in Inglewood, California at the L.A. International Airport sometime around 3.30 a.m. But it never arrived. The plane crashed in the fog and was undiscovered until around 10 a.m. that morning by some passerby. He was just cruising through the canyon and saw it. And it was due to poor visibility and low fog banks. Okay. You know, it was burning, but you couldn't tell the smoke from the fog, I'm guessing. Yeah. Who knows? The The unfortunate part of it is there were 29 people killed. Now, this one's not so, this one's kind of funny. In the early 1900s, oil exploration had begun in the area, but one day two oil men were chased out of the canyon by two large cougars, not the sexy kind, (laughs) (laughs) when their horses were spooked and panicked. And that's all it said. I tried to find more on that, but apparently wildlife, uh, mountain lions, bobcats, and even bears, you know, were running heavy in this area. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. In 2009, a woman knocked on a local's door in her underwear with her shirt tied tightly over her throat. The woman, who thought she was with quote-unquote friends, was attacked and had her throat cut, and then she was tossed over the side of the canyon. Whoa! Now, she was able to climb to safety and seek help, and she did survive the incident. Wow. I was like, damn. I bet they re- they're going to regret that. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a brief one, and there's not much info on it, but in 2011, a 41-year-old woman who was not as fortunate as our previous guest was found murdered in the canyon, and police officials did arrest her boyfriend then seven years later for the murder. Mm, okay. She was hit over the head and tossed over the side. Wow. Now, this one's pretty messed up here, too. Of course, like I said, this whole the history of this canyon is it's pretty dark. Pretty dark, yeah. On October 12th of 2002, so not real recent, but recent enough. Yeah. On October 12th, 2002, Gloria Linda Gaziola was shot in the head before being dragged for four miles to Hacienda Heights. Her body was discovered in an intersection. Her killers, who hijacked her car, were said to have eliminated her because she was going to testify to crimes they had committed. So in other words, they put a hit on her. Yeah. 
But the problem is, after killing her, they were unaware that her foot was caught in a seatbelt when they pushed her out, and they dragged her for four miles until they were able to dump her body in the intersection of Hacienda Boulevard and Colima Road. Shit. So you can actually go to this place. I actually looked it up on the map. That is a very violent death. Yeah, that was horrible. Now, these are just a few examples of the dark history that has stretched over centuries from genocide to ghost, from murder to mayhem. This canyon located in Southern California is one dark place. So, Road Warriors, another place you can visit and explore the mysteries for yourself, I would say. As always, make sure you have permission to be in any area that are not open to public. Be safe and keep your eyes and ears open. You never know what you might see or hear. You know, but there is only one way to find out, right? They do have tours if you want to go that route. Oh, cool. But personally, I would do my own investigating, you know, to eliminate the embellishment and the overzealous storytelling and all that crap. I also have a small issue with making money off tragedy, although I do know this happens. But all said, Turnbull Canyon, which I had not heard of until I researched it, sounds like the devil's playground faux show. Yeah, it's definitely a violent place for women, that's for sure. Yeah, not not a good place. I was like, good lord, man. Wow. But it was also it is also referred to as the Devil's Triangle of Southern California. Really? Yes. Because there, wow. there were plane crashes, there was murders, disappearances, uh, bodies have been discovered there of missing people, all kinds of stuff. Cool. I mean it would it would clog up, you know hours reading this stuff i just picked a few stories but yeah missing persons there's been uh animal attacks you know uh shit all of it man yeah that seems seems like a lot going on in in southern california that's uh man okay maybe that might have to be the first place we go to when we take this eventual road trip that we plan on eventual yeah i want to say say a couple (laughs) days there and see if we can you know try and find some some uh activity Maybe some cougars, both animal and non-animal. And we have the we have a lot of areas that are listed on the map. Yeah, uh, you know that are in some of the descriptions of these happenings that we can go to. So. Yeah, it's interesting that you uh, brought up the the um, the tales or the the legend of uh, devil worshippers and, and satanists and stuff because the story we have coming up has to do with satanists in California as well. Well, you know what? But it's in the northern part. <laughs> yeah. Not the southern part that you went to. So apparently all of California is just evil. Just evil. That's right. Full I of said Satanists. it. I'll say it. Yeah. Hollywood. Hollywood. Damn right. Terrible, terrible place. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and take a break and then we'll get back uh, at it with the John Homer Van Meter case. Indeed, sir. Okay, so speaking of satanic cults and satanic rituals, tonight's other story is regarding the John Homer Van Meter case. It's a very... I've never heard of it. Very cool name. I had neither, and it's not something you find a lot of information on. But after you hear this, you may end up calling him Jean-Claude Van Meter instead, because he's kind of a badass. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. It was night of Halloween 2004. John Homer Van Meter 
a self-employed logger and author from Wisconsin was driving home after attending a writer's conference in Sonoma County, California. He happened to notice a convoy of black automobiles driving into the woods. He followed the cars and eventually went out on foot and came upon an encampment. A bonfire was going and he was able to make out a woman tied nude to a stake in the ground. He saw that people walking around the campsite were also walking around nude and felt perhaps that they were performing some kind of satanic ritual on the kidnapped woman, or were about to. So, John grabbed the gun from his truck and went out to confront the group of people in the wooded area. He reached the woman at the stake and successfully freed her while taking gunfire and was shot several times in the process. Damn. Shooting back at his attackers, he apparently shot and killed four of the kidnappers and wounded a few others. Way to go, Jean-Claude. That's right. John Homer Van Mita. <laughs> the, the muscles from non-Brussels. He managed to get the girl to a vehicle and instructed her to drive off, which she did. He would never see her again. The woman would end up driving to Oakland and called her brother to come and pick her up. After he did that, John Homer Van Meter, or Jean-Claude Van Meter, <laughs> went back in and began chasing a man through the woods, each man taking shots at each other while running. Dang, you went back in there, huh? After you've been shot like four times, yeah. Shit. As the chase continued, the man yelled out to Van Meter and said, quote, We have the police and the FBI in our hip pocket here. If you kill me, you'll live in a 10 by 10 cell for the rest of your life. After Van Meter shot and killed the man, who was later identified as a cult leader, he searched the man for identification and found a business card with a phone number on it. The next day, he called, and a woman answered with, Federal Bureau of Investigation and then hung up. The day after that, he called and the number was no longer in service. Uh huh. Fake. <laughs> Van Meter filed a report with Sonoma County Police and headed back home to Wisconsin. The police waited four days before going into the woods to investigate and, of course, found nothing. What the hell? Four days? <laughs> you'll see. Yeah, Damn. you'll see. Yeah. They would end up charging him with filing a false report. He reached out to an attorney in Sonoma County who informed Van Meter to never come back to Sonoma County or he would end up being put in jail. He claimed the local officials were corrupt and he would end up serving time. That's why. You need to get your ass out of here, boy. That's why they waited four days because they're corrupt as shit. I got you. That attorney was able to reduce the sentence on his case to 10K, $10,000, sorry, and a year of probation. And what about the gunshots he received in the fight? How do they explain that? Well... The police claimed that Van Meter shot himself. What? To help perpetuate the story. Oh, forgot. Four times? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once, yeah. Once shoot, in, once in the stomach. one time. Yeah. Once okay. in the stomach. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. We'll go with that. Around one and a half years later, Van Meter, who was an avid hunter, went out in the woods in Wisconsin near his home to do some yearly hunting. While out there, he sees a car pull up next to his car and two men jump out. Damn. Two state bonus. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. He claims some of the men he wounded in the 2004 incident found out his identity and came back for revenge. Oh, hell. Another shootout ensued. Van Meter was able to hit both men, one twice and the other four times. True. That was enough to scare him off. However, you think? <laughs> he himself was shot five times. Aye, aye, aye. Thankfully, a good Samaritan was driving by at the time, was able to get him to a hospital and get medical care. By this time, Van Meter had been shot nine times from six different weapons. Holy crap. Again... Van Meter reported this incident to the police, and yet again, they came to the same conclusion as they did the first incident, that he had shot himself. Five more times. Mm-hmm. I know. Ugh. Even though it was proven that he was shot with di several different guns and bullets, and his car had been turned into Swiss cheese the second time. Golly. 
Now, he ended up being tried by the state, and the courts came to the conclusion that Van Meter had made up the whole story, and he was sentenced to a short jail term of 14 days, adds that a $2,500 fine and a year's probation. Oh, for God's sakes. Thankfully, that encounter in the woods would be the last run-in with the cult, who decided to leave Van Meter be. Now, a former FBI chief... They're Ted, probably tired of getting shot. Probably, well, they got, they got their asshole twice. <laughs> yes. You know, he, he killed the leader the first time, and then he, he, he shot the he next two He keeps getting dude. up like a T-800. So I'm saying, he's, he's Jean-Claude Van Meter, you That's know? That's right. Now, a former FBI chief, Ted Gunderson, worked on the Van Meter case and eventually became friends with him. Years later, Gunderson would receive a letter from the woman Van Meter saved. The woman he rescued changed her name and had been in hiding since the event. However, not long after her escape, she sent a letter to law enforcement about her experience. Ted Gunderson received a copy of the letter and read it out loud at a conference he was speaking at. Here is the letter in its entirety. So now we're going to get what happened from the woman's perspective. What happened nice. to her? This is one of those movies where like, like that one movie we saw where it's like six hours later and then it's from the boyfriend's point of view. Okay, so what I'm about to read um, is not completely um, grammar-wise, you know, uh, flowy, but uh, this Doesn't is matter. It's exactly how Verbatim, she wrote it. Right? right, exactly. Yep. I am the woman from the satanic cult abduction case on Halloween. I'm scared to death of them finding out who I am, so I'm not coming forward. The only person I'm ever going to tell is my brother. He thinks it'd be best if I stay anonymous, but he has convinced me to write down everything I remember exactly as I can and send it to the police. So, this is what I'm doing. They were going to rape and murder me, and I hope they get caught. People need to know what's happened to me. I'm so scared of them finding out who I am that I'm writing on an old typewriter so it won't be on my hard drive. Smart. Yeah. It started the night of Saturday, October 30th. I was walking across a parking lot in Oakland, California, and four guys got out of a car and grabbed me. They gave me a shot with a hypodermic needle in my thigh. I was unconscious for what felt like seconds. When I woke up, I was in handcuffs with my arms behind my back. My feet were tied together, and the cuffs were tied to something. I couldn't move. They blindfolded me, and I had tape over my mouth. I didn't know where I was or how long I was there. I was thirsty, and I felt like I couldn't breathe, and I had to go to the bathroom. I was terrified. As I laid there, I thought about what had happened to me over a long period of time. I'm not a religious person, but I prayed for the first time in my life for God to save me. I passed out again and had a dream where I saw a big white dog that sat down next to me. He looked at me and turned his head sideways. I felt like the dog was female and that she was there to help me. I can't explain it any other way. Then I got up and ran away. I don't know why I'm even saying this. It just seems weird and real. I woke up and still needed to use the bathroom. I finally gave in and urinated in my pants. It was awful and my pants were then wet and cold. It just seems weird and real. After a long time, I finally heard noises, like a car door opening and a couple of guys grabbed me. One guy said, the bitch pissed on the floor. The other guy told him to shut up, clean it up, and load the stuff in. I'm pretty sure now I'm in the back of a van. They took me into a house or something, and the guy said, if you cooperate, we won't hurt you. If you struggle, we will kill you. Is that understood? I nodded my head yes. What could I do? Not much. I was going to say, what choice do you have? Exactly. Right? Exactly. He said, would you like something to drink? I nodded yes. They took the tape off my mouth and gave me some water or something, but it tasted funny. 
They started to take off my clothes and I was sure they were going to rape me. The guy said, relax, we are going to give you a bath now. They guided me into a bathtub and washed me all over and shampooed my hair. I was really scared and it was really weird. They dried me off and then blue dried my hair with a blow dryer and a brush. They put a white terry cloth robe on me and taped my mouth shut again. They kept me blindfolded the whole time and sat me down in a chair. I couldn't see anything but could hear voices in another room. I began to get sleepy. I think there was something in the water they gave me. Two guys picked me up, put me back in the van, and drove away. I knew there were other people in the van, but they didn't talk. They just played loud, instrumental, heavy metal music. They drove for a long time before stopping. I was so sleepy, but I was taken out of the van, and my bare feet hit a dirt floor. I heard a lot of people talking quietly. I heard clicking noises in the van. One guy beside me said to another guy, What are you doing? The other guy said, You know, getting ready for sanitize. The first guy said, dude, we haven't had the party yet. This was so weird that I never forgot it. Then I heard a woman ask, is this a sacrifice? She untied my robe and put her hands on my breasts. She said, how did she test? The guy said, perfectly. She put her body next to me and I could feel she was naked. She said in my ear, I'm going to drink your blood. I suddenly felt sick and began to collapse. A big guy picked me up and walked with me. Then they sat me down and took off my handcuffs. Then they tied my hands and arms together and put a rope around my neck and removed the tape from my eyes. I could see it was a forest and they had tied me to a tree or something. I was so scared I was shaking I knew I was going to die. Four naked women walked up on me, which normally sounds like a good time, but this one is not. <laughs> <laughs> One was wearing chains with rings in her nipples. Again, sounds like a good time, but this one was not. And she had a big knife. She ripped the tape off my mouth and touched my breast with a knife. Then she jabbed at my face repeatedly with a knife, and I was terrified. I wanted to kill her, this bitch. They tied the robe open behind me and touched me. I don't want to be graphic, but they did sexual things to me and made me orgasm. They then did things to each other, masturbated, and had wild orgasms. This was the worst. Awful women were doing this to me. I hope they all get a terminal disease and rot in hell. Then some guys unrolled a big plastic sheet in front of me, and then they made a fire. It began to get dark. A bunch of naked people gathered in front of me. They began chanting in some weird language together. A man then came and stood in front of me. He was older than the others, maybe 30. That's not old, damn. <laughs> Damn, if that's old, I'm in trouble. If that's older than the others, were they like teenagers? I guess. Jeez. He was over six feet tall with a real lean build. His hair was almost black, so was his beard. Someone was behind me and pulled the rope on my neck tight, which forced my head up, and I noticed he had weird eyes. He had his hands on my breasts, and I stared into his eyes as he stared into mine. He never blinked. Looking in his eyes, it's like I was hypnotized. He put me in a trance, and it was like I was staring at a snake. He then put his penis inside me. I then heard loud yelling and guns shooting. The snake-eyed man jerked away from me and stood looking through the forest towards the noise. Everybody ran to the trees. The snake man poured water onto the fire and walked away quietly. I heard him say, Killer. Another naked man 
then came at me with a knife, just as another ran up beside me with a silver gun and shot him right in front of me. He was a tall old man with a white beard. Santa? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else shot at us, and he shot back. Then he said something like, Hold on, girl, I get you down. Or something. I felt my arms loosen, and I fell down. The man picked me up with his arms around my waist and walked away fast. Way to go, Jean-Claude. That's right. I heard a bang come from in front of me and saw the old man was shot in the side of his stomach and was knocked down. The old man fired back several times while laying down and got up and started cutting the ropes on my arms with a knife. He fired back twice and yelled, No more harm will come to this girl. He then said something about coming straight from God to kill them all and called them sons of bitches. Awesome. He said he was going to kill them all. I'm pretty sure that's what he said. I think he scared them. Nobody shot at us anymore. We got into a car on the road, and I think he asked me if I could drive. I said yes. He put me in the car and said some fast things to me. All I really heard was, go home and stay anonymous. I couldn't believe he wasn't going with me. I couldn't believe I was going to live when I was so sure I was going to die. I asked him, you want me to go, but are you an angel? I'll never forget his eyes. He had blood on his face, but his eyes glowed brightly blue like they were fluorescent or something. Hmm. I just watched the latest uh, Dune. I'm like, is he a Fremen? Yeah. <laughs> he said, no, but one sent me to you. Now go. I'll call the cops. I slammed the door. I hated to leave him. I felt safe with him. I don't know why he wasn't going to go with me. I drove as fast as I could, almost running off the road a couple of times. I don't know where I was, even when I finally got to the highway. I went the wrong way until I realized where I was. I turned around and went home. When I got home, it was really late. I was still shaking and had blood on me where the old man had carried me. I felt sick for him. I found out later that nobody even knew I was gone. I couldn't believe it. I was hurt by it until I realized it was my own fault. Then with this, this was the payback for all the times I fought with my parents over them wanting to know where I was every minute. I hope the newspaper prints this so I can say to the kids, stop fighting with your parents. There is a reason why they want to know where you are. Yep, right there, you just set, set an age limit. When they said 30 was old, these kids were probably, like you said, they probably were teenagers. Mm -hmm. My brother and I took the car and parked it in Berkeley. He said he'd call the cops and tell them where it was. We looked in it to see if we could find anything to tell us who it belonged to. It was weird. There was nothing in the glove box or ashtray. No litter on the floor. Nothing. The only thing in it were four black sweatshirts and four black sweatpants. All identical. We opened the trunk and all that was in there was a used syringe. Then it hit me. This red Pontiac car was the car. The car the guy got out of who abducted me. They must have put me in the trunk of this car. We're going to have the syringe tested to see what they shot me up with. When I was showering, I noticed a painful needle mark in my forearm. Then I remembered how, at one point, they said, how does she test? They drew blood from me while I was unconscious. To test for what? AIDS? I then remembered how the guy said, perfect, and I wondered if it was something else. It really scared me. Hmm. Interesting. I'm really sick and frightened for the man who saved me. I don't have a TV and haven't been calm enough to watch with anybody else. My wonderful brother has been on the run and hadn't done anything either. I learned last night how you can tell a lot about a man who's looking really close into his eyes. The snake man and the old man who saved me were exactly the opposite. 
you could see it in their eyes. What I remembered most of this is the shiny blue eyes of the man who saved me. He reminded me of my grandfather. I want him to live because he's a good man who somehow miraculously saved me and because I wrote down in the newspaper and explained to me why he looked like my grandfather. I can't think of him dying and I'm scared to death that's what's going to happen. I know now why he stayed there. He was mad as hell and he wanted to kill them. My grandfather had a, te a bad temper for bad people. I hope he does kill them. I know these snakes did this before to others like me and if they live they would do it again. I especially want the snake man to die. Well, you got your wish. He got killed. Sweet. I never want to see him ever again. People like this can't be rehabilitated. I can never forgive him. It took me all afternoon and all night to write this. I hope it makes sense to someone who reads it. I had to take a lot of breaks before crying. The sun will be up soon and it will be another day. My brother is leaving soon to mail the letter away from my home. I don't want those snakes to know the zip code I live in. Then he is going out to the forest where I think I was taken to look for the man who saved me. I'm going to stay home and pray for God to save this man. He saved me. I hope he will save the man who sent, who was sent to do this. I don't know if this will help catch the snakes who tried to rape and kill me. I tried hard to remember anything I could and I'm still so shaken up. I can't think. I'll never be normal again. Hmm. No, I guess not. Now, John, rough. John Van Meter is still alive today. Okay. Uh, he wrote a book on it. I forget what it's called. It basically talks about how it was all covered up by the law enforcement and how it's there's a big cover up regarding this kind of thing. Probably some kids of the local law enforcement, maybe. Could be, yeah. With uh, access to things they can use to get a hold of people. The handcuffs for one and stuff like that. I mean right. I know you can buy handcuffs, but but you know, like the stuff to knock people out and all this crap. Maybe yeah. truth serum or on this this sodium pentothal. Yeah, that I mean, I don't know. And the fact that the police waited so long to go out. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're, they, they know it's their kids, so they're trying to cover it up. Yeah. But like I said, he's still alive today. However, on July 31st, 2011, Gunderson's son reported that his father had died from bl bladder cancer at the age of 82. Oh, man. Gunderson himself describes suffering from a decline in health after being diagnosed with arsenic poisoning, hmm. of which bladder cancer is a common symptom by his doctor, Edward Lacidi. The CD reported that he was assisting Gunderson with treatments to neutralize the arsenic, but due to Gunderson's busy schedule, he did not have time to undergo more comprehensive therapies to fully remove the poisons from his system. Many conspiracy theorists believe he was poisoned for his work exposing the cults, the cultists, and their activities. As far as Van Meter and the woman, they seem to be both alive and well to this day. Nice. I want to go meet Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude Van Meter? I want to meet him. I mean, the dude got... The dude, like, he just got that divine, like, something's going on sort of thing. Right. And, and he went out there at just the right time. You know, he, he got shot four times but didn't didn't go down. He shot some fools yeah. and killed the snake man. He says, I'm going to kill them all. When you said that, I was thinking Wick. Oh, yeah. He says, whoever you send. Well, his name is John. Whoever comes, tell them, I'll kill them. Kill them, them all. I'll so kill them all. That's maybe, right. Maybe instead of John Van Meter, we call him John Van Wick. John Van Wicky. John Van Wicky. <laughs> <laughs> Well, whoever you are, if you ever, if by freak chance you listen to this broadcast, man, God bless you for stepping up and helping that woman. Yeah, that, that uh, is crazy. So it was interesting that you brought up that in the um, Canyon story about how they sometimes believe that there are, you know, Satanists who go out there and perform rituals. Because I was like, that's exactly yeah. what we're talking about now. Yep. And, and, and you mentioned that, uh, you know, people go missing there all the time. And, and Gunderson believes that uh, he believed that there were thousands of people that go missing every year 
And these are opposite ends of the state, too. Yeah. You said that's up there near Napa Valley. Yep. This is way down way south. Way south, yeah. Uh, but but California is just one big cesspool. So, yes, you know. it is. Um, but, yeah. So that was, I thought that was a very, very crazy-ass story. That was a damn good one, though, man. Yeah. I really love the I fact. I mean, it's unfortunate for the young lady, but, God, what a what a what an ordeal. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, she had, you know, just that Gunderson, or not Gunderson, but... Uh, John Van Wyck just happened to be there in the right place at the right time, and he just felt like something was up, and he happened to be a badass. And he acted. And he, he acted. Just, he didn't just drive away. Yeah. And he killed that six-foot-tall, snake-eyed son of a bitch. Yep. But yeah, and, and she's alive because she's alive today because of it. He's alive still um, because he's, he's you know, he, apparently you can't take... Oh, he's bulletproof, obviously. Yeah, apparently he's bulletproof. You can't take John Van Wyck down, apparently. No, I guess not. But yeah, yeah, and, and you don't see a lot of coverage of this elsewhere again no. that that's part of the reason why or part of why conspiracy theorists think that this is like a whole cover-up thing because yeah other than his book the work by uh ted gunderson who in himself was a huge conspiracy theorist even though he was an ex-fbi chief mm-hmm. he's a huge conspiracy theorist um they all think that it's just the government trying to cover up the government the government the government there they go again yeah but yeah, man. So that that's it for today, man. So um, fantastic. Where are we going to next? Well, amigo, we're going to head down south to the land of enchantment, New Mexico. New Mexico. That's our next state. Ooh, can we get some tamales? And, tamales. Ooh, go to Albuquerque and get a, a green chili burger. Albuquerque. Mm. Albuquerque. Mm. That's oh, right. While we're there, let's stop and check out the Roswell Museum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is a cool place. Uh, let's just watch out for all the meth heads there. There's a lot of meth heads. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm excited to go to Mexico. Uh, I'm looking forward to that state. So what do you say we get on down the road, brother? All right, man. Hit that tape deck. Start the car up and let's get going. Let's get the hell out of here. I wanted to tell you about the house where I lived in England. My dad was an engineer and worked for BP, so we lived in several countries when I was growing up. But our home base was in San Francisco. When I was eight, we had to move to London, England, and the company rented a house for us in an area called Hampstead. The house was built in the early 1900s, and we loved it. It was gorgeous. It had four bedrooms, and it was quite spacious, especially for a small family of four, my parents, my younger brother, and I. The first few months went by without any incident, until one day we came back from the movie theater at night and noticed that all the lights in the house were on. The TV in the living room and one of the radios were on too, but nobody was there. All the doors and windows were locked and there was no sign of forced entry. Nonetheless, my dad called the police. They came a few minutes later and inspected the entire house and concluded that whoever did this had to have had a key. They told us that it had to be someone we knew and more than likely they were just playing a joke on us. Nothing was missing and everything was exactly the way we had left it before we went to the movies. We didn't really know anyone in London except for a few of my dad's colleagues and the only people we had befriended in the neighborhood were a couple of older ladies in their 60s who were sisters and lived across the street from us. So it was very unlikely that someone we knew was playing a joke on us. A few weeks later, we were sleeping and in the middle of the night, one of the radios downstairs turned on by itself and we could hear how someone was or something was trying to tune into different stations. So, my dad got up right away and came into my room to see if it was I that was the one playing with the radio, but when he saw me and realized that I had just woken up, he ran downstairs to inspect the situation. Obviously, nobody was there, so he just turned off the radio and went back to sleep. After that night, 
We would hear steps in the living room almost every night. It sounded as if there was someone walking around the living room in the dining room area, back and forth on the hardwood floor. We would also hear something that sounded like a screeching noise. Sometimes, we also heard the sound of dishes being washed in the kitchen, or furniture being pushed or dragged around, or other odd noises. Months went by, and the activity seemed to increase to a point to where things were happening on a daily basis. Very often, I would hear heavy steps walking up the stairs, and they would stop right outside of my door, only to turn around and go back down the stairs. These were almost daily occurrences. One night, my parents invited four of my dad's colleagues and their wives over for dinner. Two of these couples had children about my age, so the adults were sitting at the dining room table having drinks after dinner, and we, the kids, were playing board games on the floor in the living room. For whatever reason, my dad jokingly started talking about the ghosts who lived in our house, and everyone was asking questions about them and having a good laugh. Now, obviously, no one took it seriously, but unexpectedly, a glass vase that we had sitting on a sideboard just flew away sideways about eight feet from where it had been resting, crashing to the ground. At that point, everyone in the room got up and ran out of the house into the street. Many of them didn't even want to come back inside the house to get their coats and purses, so my dad had to do it for them. A couple of weeks later, my mom asked a Presbyterian priest to come into the house to bless it. So he did. After that, things got pretty quiet for about two months until one day my mom, my brother, and I were having dinner. It was a stormy night, so all the windows were shut tight to prevent drafts. Suddenly, the electricity went out as we were finishing our dinner. My mom lit up a couple of candles and gave me one of them. We started making our way up the stairs to the second floor when all of a sudden something blew out our candles and we even heard the sound of the wind the same way you do when someone blows out a candle on a birthday cake. My mom grabbed my hand and dragged me up the stairs as fast as she could while she was carrying my little brother in her arms. We ran into the master bedroom and stayed there until the power came back on a few minutes later. After that, my dad arrived home from work. Two weeks later, his company found us a new house in a different part of town, and we stayed in London for a couple more years until we moved back to San Francisco in 1980. Many years later, in 2004, I got a job as a business consultant working for a British company in New York, and eventually I had to move to London with them for a little over a year. While I was there, I thought about going back to Hampstead. I wanted to see the house where we had lived. It seemed like it was such a long time ago, and sometimes I wondered if everything I remembered actually happened or if it was something we imagined. So, one day I drove down there on a Sunday morning. I parked my car right outside and stared at the house for a few minutes. Suddenly, a man came out and asked me if I needed something. I got out of my car and told him that I had lived in the house when I was a child and briefly told him my story. I didn't say anything about our paranormal experiences at first. I just told him why we lived there and how long we'd stayed in the house. He asked me if we enjoyed it and if we noticed anything strange about the house while we were there. So, at that point, I knew what he was talking about. So we had about an hour-long conversation about the strange happenings. He invited me in and I accepted, even though I was not too happy about it. I felt really weird being back inside. He told me about his experiences and later on I had a chance to meet his wife and teenage daughter. They all shared their stories with me. That was the last time I was there and have no intention of going back ever again. 
Every now and then I dream about the house and relive some of the things that I experienced as a child. Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. I was living with a friend at the time, as I had nowhere to really go, and I was saving up for an apartment of my own due to reasons irrelevant to the story, and my girlfriend typically stayed the night with me, as we had an entire basement bedroom to ourselves, and he didn't really mind, as we were all close, and still are to this day. I was a pretty heavy smoker at the time, and went outside to take my habit away from the house to which my girlfriend would follow to partake as well. So, like any other time that my nicotine craving set in, I would grab my lighter from the bedside table and go to head out into his driveway. My friend lived out in the country, surrounded by forests, country roads and several farms. He had a pretty sizeable yard in front of the road, which led into some dense trees, and the only place really open around those parts was a gas station you could walk down to in about five minutes. Anything else was a good 15-20 minutes away. Anyway, as I head outside, my girlfriend behind me, her and I are having a pretty light-hearted conversation, inside jokes and whatnot, before something catches my eye near my vehicle, which was parked under the old oak tree near the centre of his yard in the driveway. I'm sure everyone knows the feeling of trying to focus on something that you feel isn't supposed to be there, so you tune everything out around you. Well, that's what was going on. Besides my car, there was something crouched down, akin to how a cat or dog would sit. It was about 11pm so it was dark and the porch light wasn't reaching far enough to get it, but this is what I could make out. It had long arms that despite being in front of it, the elbows pointed back behind it. There was no visible hair that I could see, and it had a large bulbous head, and looked to have what I'm guessing could be pointed ears, judging from the silhouette of the thing. I'm not entirely sure about the size as I was still a distance away, and it was crouched down beside my vehicle, but it looked like if it stood up, it could be about my height, and I'm 6'1". As soon as I started to piece together what I was staring at, I realised my girlfriend had begun questioning me, calling out my name and walking to my side. Instinctively, I blocked her way with my arm and told her to get back inside as I continued staring at this thing, which made no effort to turn and look at us and remained unmoving. She gave a sort of laugh, assuming I was messing with her, which isn't unlike me, then she began trying to look at what I was focused on. She catches sight of it, and I remember her asking me, what is that? I had no idea how to answer her, but this confirmed that what I was seeing was entirely real. In a panic, we both started backing towards the door, still garnering no reaction from the thing at my car until we were at the door, fumbling for the knob, and then finally getting inside. After we're inside, she asks again what it is. I still had no idea. After we head back down to the basement, she decides to sketch what she'd seen so I can get a look at it and that we can line up exactly what she saw. A few minutes later, I'm looking at it again on paper. A bulbous head, long arms with the elbows arched behind it, crouched down and pointed protrusions we are both assuming were ears. 
An ex of mine used to have get-togethers during high school where we'd drink and do what typical junior and seniors our age did. Where I wound up staying where I saw this thing is about 15 minutes from there, give or take. It's back road heavy, so most of it is woods and the like. After her and I broke up, I stopped going as you'd expect. One of the nights, my friend called me around 11. He had chosen to crash on the couch and he was new to the area. Apparently, when he and my ex had gone outside to smoke, they heard a loud cry of sorts that made them run back inside. I've lived in areas with mountain lions and coyotes, so so I was called to ask if there was any animal I know that could, as they put it, wail. All that came to mind was really a mountain lion. So they looked it up and said it sounded nothing like that. Obviously, I, I wasn't there to witness it, and this was a few years before my encounter. But thinking about it now, it is odd how close the area is. As far as the thing I saw goes, something that stood out to me is that I don't know if it was crouching or hiding. My girlfriend and I talk about it from time to time. But one question that always comes up is why at my car that I parked under an old tree? I went there to grab my cigarettes from the glove box multiple times a night, as I smoked half a pack a day, maybe more before I kicked the habit. I doubt it was waiting on me or anything, but it's just such a strange place to see anything really when there's a massive front yard right in front of it. Ever since I've moved out, I've only been back to house sit for the occasions he's on vacation. I only stay long enough to tend to his cats, food, water and litter. Any longer than that and I'm practically sprinting out the door with my girlfriend in tow. We've both decided the whole area is just wrong in a way that you feel when you're sneaking around in a no trespassing area.